Welcome to episode 15 of the Thermopolis podcast. Been a while, huh, Rajesh? And Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year, Ji. The world has changed since we last spoke and how. The world has gone off its rocker, one could say. A certain Mr. Trump has tweeted and trolled his way to become the president-elect of the United States of America. And everything that you can do, we can do better. A certain Mr. Modi has made 86% of the currency in India useless in one stroke at the stroke of midnight hour one day in November. So surgical strikes continue, don't they? Country continues to progress. 82% of the cash is back in the banks and his studies are to be believed. Only about 6% of India's cash was part of the shadow economy. So let me get this straight. Uh, to get 6% of the black money, we kill 86% of the entire currency in India? What kind of questions do you ask? <laughs> Not only that, narratives have been changed and often. You know, PR truly drives policy in today's age. Yeah, that delusion of the cashless economy. Hanji. You know, it's fascinating how the chimera of black money and corruption... You know, usually such a big hit among our middle classes was dropped in no time. Yeah, and as soon as the PR machinery realized that there is a large-scale support for the cashless revolution, and not just in India, of course, but especially among the NRI supporters, you know, supporting making India great again. I see what you did there. Don't brand the podcast. We're trying to stay away from labels. Not faring too well there, I'm afraid, given our choice of topics. But anyway, I have a feeling we need to pull up our socks. And by we, I mean all of us who are concerned about each other and also about those that don't have a voice. Especially since we have to reinvent the whole wheel and convince people that climate change is real and workplace and societal discrimination does indeed happen. I only hope that we are all being paranoid and that this denial doesn't amount to change in policy. Yeah, that would be horrid, wouldn't it? Uh, But let's not be dejected this early on in the new year. Let's focus on the matter at hand. Back to Baba Sahib. Yep. You know what's surprising, and that too in a good way? What? Ambedkar's literary voice. You mean his cutting wit? Well, yes, he doesn't pull any punches to mix metaphors. Yeah, and different from what one might expect from the famous lawgiver. Ah, I can't help commenting on the irony that the main lawgiver of the Indian constitution is a man opposed tooth and nail to the mythical lawgiver of the past. Ambedkar as Manu, or Ambedkar versus Manu. Some things do change for the better. So what were you saying about his writing? I mean, it was so common to write in long Victorian sentences, like, thou hast made me write that way. But Ambedkar is nothing like that. He's a punchy writer, like Gandhi, but of course coming from a different direction. Yeah, you know, they're more interesting as human beings than as heroes. And there's a lesson for us there. Well, I'll try not to wear my underwear on top of my pants anymore. I'm just, I'm just glad you've heard the voice of reason. <laughs> Ambedkar's book throws a new light on the independent struggle, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, you know, should social reform come first or political reform? Well, Ambedkar thought the former. Gandhi clearly thought the latter. Kiski azadi, we keep circling back to this, huh? Kiski azadi indeed. But it's a serious question. For political freedom isn't about politics alone. It's not only about the right to conduct election. It's about the right to enjoy the fruits of one's labor too, yeah. And we know that the British rule was extractive, even as it pretended to be liberal. And independence was all about 
control over these resources. And Gandhi thought that as long as the British were in charge, we will suffer from the extractive nature of the modern world. Of course, he was also perceptive that leaving Indians in charge won't change matters if the bronze Sabs are the modern types as well. Mm-hmm. And Ambedkar had a different version of that story. He didn't think putting Indians in charge will help much as long as the oppressive system of caste is still in place. And as you can see, there's an interesting yin-yang relationship there. Gandhi clearly felt that caste helped constrain capitalist extraction. How so? Well, because it limited the number of people who can participate in extractive economic functions. Uh, So why should the oppressed suffer for the greed of the rich? And why should upper castes dominate the capital class? Indeed. I don't have an answer to that question. But all I want to say is, why should they? It's a double insult when your lands are made unworkable because of modern development and you're forced to toil for your new masters. You know, it's almost as if the worst of both worlds has come to pass. Can you say more? The the caste hierarchies remain entrenched and the modern system remains out of reach to the people at the bottom and their limited resources are being threatened by development. Precismo. Coming back to annihilation of caste. Amerika does not mince his words and his barbs at Jatpat, Todak, Mandal and how they are breaking from the ranks are quite interesting. Isn't it Jatpat, Todak, Mandal? Jatpat. (laughs) Okay, just just clarifying. So yeah, he is. And in his own words, uh, he is persona non grata to the Hindus uh, who will not let go of their caste system and identities. But he's agreed to preside over the Mandal's function you know, because he saw it as a platform for social reform and that was a cause that he could get behind. Social reform, an easy enough task then. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> One of the most significant points that Ambedkar raises is the difference between political and social consciousness. Both are essential to nation building, aren't they? Yes, they are. And to be frank, even the idea of nation building is far from us today. You now we take the nation for granted. But they were thinking about it all the time. Gandhi credited uh, the Indian National Congress with gathering India together as a nation. While Ambedkar is of the opinion that the INC has been established only to strengthen political organization. That alone, however, would not be able to take care of the social organization of the country. And therefore, he cites the social conference. Nation building is made up of these two simultaneous tracks. Hmm. Interesting. Now, we spoke about this, I think, uh, you know, about whether the social upliftment and organization ought to have been part of the nation building. And here it is. I mean, the leaders did think of it. Sometimes in a patronizing way, like upliftment of the masses. But it's true that Ambedkar definitely thought about social um, freedom as much as political freedom, maybe more. And then he outlines what happened, how the two streams became two competing political interests. Competing, yeah, exactly, instead of working in tandem with each other. Yes, and because of the competition and then active hostility, the social conference all but vanished from our history books. Yeah, and wow, and this was by the 1890s. Yep, some things don't change. You know, this tussle between political and social reform, I think is not easy, we know that. And for those who advocated for the primacy of political empowerment over social reform, Ambedkar asks, are you, I quote, are you fit for political power, even though you don't allow a large class of your own countrymen like the untouchables to use public schools? Are you fit for political power, even though you don't allow them the use of public wealth, 
public streets or to wear what apparel or ornaments they like, end quote. And all of this could still be said of today. Isn't that the most unfortunate? Yeah. <sighs> now, what's interesting is that most of the social conference members were high caste Hindus. And reform for them meant something else than what you or I would think today. Or what Ambedkar was thinking then. Manje? Manje ki, they didn't want to abolish caste. They were okay with working on widow, remarriage, child marriage, sati, etc. You know, the Brahmo Samaj style uh, social improvement, but not to reorganize and shake up the Hindu structures around them. Hmm. Obviously, we now know that social and religious problems directly influence or have an effect over the political constructions. But by now, this is taken as a given and is in fact used as a tool. Yeah. And Ambedkar criticizes the socialists in India for failing to see humans as more than just economic creatures and seeing social and political reform as superfluous. It's also interesting to see how he looks at religion and the sway it has over people. You know, again, he could be writing about today, you know, and shows how some things haven't changed. And I felt that I felt the same uh, in his account of atrocities towards the Dalits that he mentions uh, in this work. And then in his examples of how the great holy men have had such a hold over people. Uh, you as Sri Sri Sri, Sri to the power N would know. <laughs> he cites the Roman Republic as a precedent um, to show how the religious powers have greater powers than local government and it still happens in many pockets of India. Sri to the power N to your, at your service. Um, you know, he, America does put the responsibility on the plebeians though, that they like the aristocrats and the powerful, believe that the gods needed to approve of the office. So clearly religion won over political and social rights. And of course, money goes along with power. There are accounts of the big banking families of the day supporting these appointments. Watch Medici on Netflix to see this next other play. <laughs> a little. I mean, we don't even have any endorsements or advertisements, but we're still, you know, doing it free of cost. But don't don't knock our attempts. It's only a matter of time before you know Star Wars um, first launches on our channel. Right. <laughs> but on a serious note, America has a relevant question for the socialists in India, don't doesn't he? that the version of economic history, that equalization of property is key to solving our inequality may not be the entire truth. But can you have economic reform without social reform? I mean, that's his question. Hmm. Meaning uh, the saying you believe in equality uh, is merely paying lip service because the ground reality is so starkly different. Ambedkar still believes in socialism, though, in his writing. And he is just saying, consider things apart from just the economic status. That free society that we dream of cannot be built on a society where suppression and discrimination are rife. So even if India became a socialist country overnight, it would not be an equal and just society. Just because the social order is still full of high and low and pure and unclean, all the divisions that we are quite acutely aware to this day. You know, it's bizarre. It confounds me that even today, there are people who defend caste and revel in their caste identities. The favorite refrain used to be that of division of labor. Even Gandhiji said that. And nowadays in modern societies, there are traditions and cultural organizations perpetuating caste. There are thousands of nonprofits in India and abroad based on caste identities that mainly, that, that many 
you know, highly educated and qualified Indians are a part of. It's true. And, and we have to ask, why is it that caste has actually, that politics has in fact entrenched caste? Perhaps not necessarily in the same unequal fashion that it was before, but, you know, it's a big question. Why is it that caste hasn't gone away? Uh, and that's a question that we will need to come back to. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking here, you know, are stories that we've all heard of, you know, an NRI Diwali celebration in the West Coast of the U.S., which is where, of course, all the upper castes are these days, uh, in case you didn't know that. But it's only for a certain sect of Brahmins, you know, it's just an occasion of get together and build community, as they say. I can't tell you how many times I've come across something like that. Yeah, it's jarring. How are we okay with this? I mean, tradition is not the excuse for eternizing an oppressive system. How different is it than, um, you know, than being part of the KKK? Uh, it's only a matter of time we asked, started asking those questions seriously. And, yeah. you know, movie, there's been a spate of books and movies like The Hunger Games and Divergent recently, you know, dividing people according to talents and aptitudes. You know, I always think of the Indian caste system when someone refers to these books. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, me too. Yeah. And division of labor is understandable. But why the division of laborers into hierarchies? I mean, this division is not based on natural aptitude, but by birth. So it all depends on which family you're born into. Nothing more or nothing less. There's no choice involved in this division. I can't see how this makes sense in any consensual society. And Ambedkar basically says that because of this system, there are occupations, uh, that people want to escape from because of the ruining effects they have on the people. So his argument basically is, how then can this be an economically sound system when a section of people do not even want to be in those economic positions? Questions, questions, questions. Well, they will remain questions for today. Um, next time we'll discuss the next few parts of the annihilation of caste, but let's hope that the world stays together until then. Oh yes, annihilation of caste, not the world. I hope so. But until next time, find us on iTunes or SoundCloud and write to us with comments and suggestions. Bye, everyone. Stay safe.